I love that voice. Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today we are joined by Sumit Kumar, a Managing Director or Partner at BCG, and Oyi Chu, the CEO at ADEX. Sumit and Oyi, thank you so much for doing this. How are you both doing today? Good. Uh, it's great to be back on your show, Michael. It's great to have you. Sumit, welcome for the first time. It's great to have you hey. as well. Thank you, Michael. And, you know, really excited to join this for the first time. You sound awesome, by the way. I like to start some conversations like this with definitions for our listeners. And I really want to dig deeply into on-chain asset tokenization. So maybe you can help define that for us. Yeah. So look, I think, Michael, it's it's quite an interesting concept, right? So yep. asset tokenization is taking a large asset and breaking it down into small pieces. And that's what a token means, right? And the fact that you need to know who owns that token to actually do that, you have to actually put it on a chain, right? And, and in simple words, it's a block where you actually inscribe and tell who owns this asset and how the transfers are happening. So in the popular world, we call it the blockchain, right? So it's yeah. literally taking an asset, breaking it down, documented it on a chain saying who owns the asset. And when the transaction happens, all of those transactions are noted there, right? Yep. You know, many a times people think it's actually a cryptocurrency. It's actually quite different, you know, while cryptocurrency and on-chain asset tokenization will use a similar distributed ledger technology. But, you know, asset tokenization is all about taking a real-world asset, a land, you know, a share, you know, a barrel of oil, you know, a barrel of corn, right, and tokenizing it. So it's quite different than, you know, a classic cryptocurrency. So I'm so glad you brought this up, right? Because I like I do like to separate sort of the technological underpinnings of blockchain or distributed ledger technology and sort of this speculation in tokens, right? And I think sometimes we suffer from the fact that tokenization and tokens sounds like the same thing. And actually, they're not they're not exactly the same thing at all. Or you, you're shaking your head, yes. Did you want to add something there as well? No, I think uh, that's exactly right, uh, Michael. And we've been at ADEX been fighting this definition for the right? last you know, good part of the two years, right? Because uh, people get very confused with tokenization and, and tokens and cryptocurrency. And I think the application of blockchain is far, far, far greater than just cryptocurrencies. And the power of the blockchain, which we can get into a lot of detail, is uh, it's if you think about the information in a block, which is what me just mentioned, then actually you can also create code to execute uh, instructions to that block, right? right. Take bonds, redeem the token, and things like that. So um, I think that's where the real power of asset tokenization lies as well, not just about cryptocurrency trading. That's very different. So this brings up another really interesting topic, right? If the token itself is programmable, and if there's a smart contract part of this, does what happened in the Ethereum market or to Ethereum itself, right, this big merge that everyone's been talking about recently, does this have impact on what's been happening? And even if it does or if it doesn't, like what, what do we see as the impact of this merge? I don't know. Uh, I, I can quickly go first, right? Go so I, think, I think it's quite interesting, right? I mean, this whole merge was moving from you know uh you know proof of proof of work to proof of stake right yep. and i think that's 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 an important implication because if you think of a proof of work mechanism to validate a transaction Go ahead. it's much more you know quote unquote labor intensive labor defined as you know energy in that world right like the extent of carbon footprint it will have and the extent of resources which are required yeah and i think with ethereum which is 
the second largest market cap in terms of uh, you know the the cryptocurrency moving from proof of stake to proof of work sorry from proof of work to proof of stake yep. what you will actually find is that it will actually make transactions cheaper and faster right and that actually i mean if you really think of it today michael what is what is coming in way for us to move full scale to cryptocurrency for doing payments right why can't it replace a visa or a master right there are two re- there are three reasons for it right go ahead the first is transactions per second right how much tps can it support right second is what is the energy consumption cost behind this right and third is the whole element of cyber security and especially when you do interoperability across chains how does how secure it is right so actually by the whole ethereum merge solves one very big issue right which is actually moving from a much more resource intensive process to a much more linear process from an energy perspective right and that is important because one of the largest chains in the world is actually moving in that direction and that's how it will actually help to drive many more use cases and it will actually help a multiple layer two chains which are being built on top to further improve the whole energy efficiency and the way these use cases can be brought to life yeah do we want to talk about the difference between proof of work and proof of stake again i like definitions and i think some people like this idea of proof of work people can kind of understand but proof of stake is a little bit more complicated does one of you want to explain what that means as well i'm happy to uh, if that's okay Go so ahead. look i think it's it's quite simple right if you think of uh, what is a proof of work right i mean if i if i try to make it very simple for our listeners right like yep. you know when when a when somebody is trying to do a transaction right you have a bunch of people trying to solve a puzzle you know solve a complicated equation and whoever is able to solve that complicated equation and validate it is actually get gets paid right gets paid for doing it but as so many computers or so much of calcul you know so much of computing capacity is going behind that calculation and that actually leads to much higher resources consumption and that's exactly what proof of work is right right versus proof of stake is 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 much different right i think proof of stake is 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 about the fact that you know you actually like different different validators um are actually staking a part of you know some amount of cryptocurrency and using it to come up to consensus right so basically what is blockchain blockchain is all about coming to a consensus that is this a valid transaction or not and the validators then just actually go and you you select a set of validators based on the fact that who is staking a specific uh, you know the, the the cryptocurrency on the chain and then that is actually then used to validate the transaction versus you know millions of people trying to solve a puzzle right and hence this helps to make it a bit more faster and makes the transaction much more energy efficient right and that is how the new blocks are are created but whoever actually wins that proof of stake is able it gets the right to create the stake like to create the new block it it almost seems to me and again both of you can comment on this that yeah. proof of stake is means that the participants are more aligned in a way with what's happening right and in the sense that if proof of work it's just me buying way more computers than you using way more energy than you like running all this water through the pipes to get my computers to be cooled and all this other stuff and just in a way i kind of don't care but proof of stake is like i'm involved as well i care and i'm i'm willing to get paid a little bit but it also increases the speed to and and remove some of the the a lot of the energy consumption as well can we yep. go back a little bit to this conversation about the crypto markets because i think there's a mindset change that needs to take place for people to continue in the growth of this on-chain asset tokenization do you or you maybe you can comment on this as well what do you think that this terra luna thing 
impacted the way people think about what's happening in the market. Again, whether it's directly related to on-chain asset tokenization or not, it's still out there, yeah? I think what's happened is quite interesting, right? Terra Luna has exposed um, you know, some of the critical uh, aspects of cryptocurrency, yep. stable coins and all of that, in that it exposed the unregulated part of it. Right. Yeah. Investors went in well knowing that this is unregulated. And so the concepts of consumer protection, uh, market behavior have now sort of bubbled up to the forefront. And everyone that used to say, please don't regulate crypto. Right. And I was saying, please regulate crypto. Which is good, which is good for entities that are already regulated. Yes. That's I mean, so it's fantastic because it does. Force a conversation because crypto is not just about and, and Terra Luna is actually within that space. It's not just about the bitcoins or the Ethereum's or right. the altcoins. It's also about stable coins, and it's now pushed the regulators to really take a hard look at what is a stable coin. Right? How should it be regulated? Uh, what does cryptocurrency mean relative to stable coins? And then uh, you know where MAS has been in Singapore is start to clearly define the cryptocurrency space and the digital currency space, but more importantly, the digital currency space and the digital securities piece. Yeah. So as someone uh, that I was at a, a webinar said, you know, crypto winter is actually blockchain summer because in being forced to think about the differences between digital currencies, digital securities, cryptocurrency, stable coins, the conclusion therefore is blockchain has so much applicability that we have to divorce the thinking between what is the technology that will solve asset tokenization versus uh, um, creating regulation around market behavior and consumer protection in cryptocurrency. I completely agree. And look, I contend, and Simon, I'll get to you in a second if you want to comment, but I always contend at the beginning of any new market or frankly, any new paradigm, that they're always going to be these operators off to the left or off to the right doing things that we don't want them to do. And sure, we'd love to self-regulate, but at some point, everybody looks at them and says, yeah, see that thing over there? That's why. We're not doing that. So come over to this side where there's actually regulation, there's market structure, and the things that you expect to happen in a regulated market are actually happening. This protects you. Sumit, was there something you wanted to add? No, I think I just want to add to the whole point. We talked about crypto winter, right? And I think it's very interesting that how people look and define crypto winter, right? Um, you know, I, I think for the normal world, people will say, oh, crypto prices have crashed, right? The world has come down, prices are down by two thirds, right? You know, the way we look at it is how much code is being committed in GitHub by developers in the DLT, uh, you know, in the DLT space. And what is very interesting is the codes that are being committed has not changed. So what is happening is the developer activity has not gone down, right? The speculative activity has gone down and that's bang on to the point that's actually blockchain summer. You know, all the right projects will get funding. People will actually invest in the right things. People will focus on the right things, right? And if you also link it to what recently, uh, you know, the, the American um, regulators have come out with, right? I think with the, with the framework that Joe Biden had requested his own regulators to come out with. And I think the three clear things which very clearly stand out from there, right, is the fact that you know, how do you protect the interest of the retail investor, right? Be it yep. stablecoin or be it any cryptocurrency, right? How do you ensure illicit money is managed, right? And you're not doing random money transfer, illegal money transfer and managing that. 
And third, what does this whole stable coin mean now from a CBDC perspective? And should you actually create your own CBDC and why not? What is the model we do it, right? So I think all of this is actually going to legitimize crypto much more because all the authorities will look at it and realize that while there are bad parts of it and let's kill it, but there are amazing parts of it. Let's adopt it. Let's grow it and let's make it bigger. And this is exactly what will happen. The industry in the next three to five years will become so much more stronger. And I feel like, you know, the right players and I mean, ADDX is one of them, but the right players who invest behind it now will actually emerge as winners, right? The way we had internet winners and the people who actually invested in the early 2000s. Go ahead. Oh, it looks like you wanted to say something. Do you want to add something there as well? No, I mean, I, I think I completely agree with that. Um, and we see that shift actually also supporting financial services that have traditionally been thinking about, oh, you know, blockchain as a little project in some part of, yeah. you know, square bracket. And today the discussion is not about cryptocurrency and where it's at. It's actually now about interoperability of the chains within financial institutions. So it's not it's no longer a question of is blockchain a technology that will be adopted. It is now a technology that's being drafted and adopted and being thought of as a network of chains. So that's a that by itself signals a very interesting shift in the mindset globally. Yeah, to I mean interoperability is so important. Is there a regulatory side to this as well? We're saying like, if you're going to build another chain on which you think that this on-chain asset tokenization should take place, that it has to be a good actor in the context of all the other things that are taking place as well. Sumit, what do you think? So, so I think, look, I think, you know, you know, I, I go and meet a lot of clients, right? And a lot of banks, right? Without naming any of these, right? But <laughs> the first question they ask me, right? You know, do you think asset tokenization can be real, right? Um, and do you think when they say real, like, can they be huge, right? And what can stop them, right? I think the whole interesting point there is, I don't think technology is an issue, Michael, right? At all. Interoperability as a technology will mature and will have it. The problem is regulatory framework, right? Think of it like this, right? Let's say I have a piece of land sitting in Singapore, right? Mm -hmm. And I tokenize that land. I give that token to you. And suddenly you transfer the ownership of that token to somebody sitting in Abu Dhabi or somebody sitting in Brazil, yep. your local regulator will not be very okay with it, right? Because you are literally anything and everything which is governed by a local regulator, as soon as you try to move them outside that private chain and make it global, all of these things are quote-unquote security tokens. They are regulated by the local regulator. They are losing control on it. And the biggest thing which will come in way of these things becoming bigger is the regulators themselves, how open they are, and how much they allow interoperability for things to move out of your jurisdiction to another jurisdiction, right? And that's where the trick is. Yeah, so this is like, you're right. I don't think it's a technological problem at all. The the interoperability can be solved through software. All of this stuff can. Yeah. But one of the things that I think about a lot, right? And let's just go back 20, 30, 40. We can go back 50 years. So I don't really care, right? The SEC in the United States regulated the securities markets there. The FSA in Japan, regulates the securities markets there. And to be fair, they don't have to be exactly the same because the likelihood that somebody is going to buy a Japanese security in the United States was close to zero. I understand the ADR market, sure, but those regulations were okay in Japan. And if somebody externally wanted to buy a Japanese stock, they had to register in Japan to be able to do that. And then were governed by the securities Japanese. regulators there. The problem today, not the problem, but the issue that needs to be resolved today 
is the regulatory interoperability at some level, right? And that I think is also a gigantic opportunity from a technology standpoint. Or you go ahead, sorry. That's, well, you're exactly right. I mean, what we're also seeing in, in just to combine all the points, the biggest yep. issue is about a regulatory uh, cross-border issue, right? So yeah. cross-border securities regulation issue. But as you rightly said, this also can be solved by tech, which is why we think that blockchain is such a potentially such a powerful platform. Because if you think about smart contracts, I mean, you may be at one layer looking at, you know, what the what the security does and then executing smart contracts on top of that. But also, can the can the token be traded in the US or in Hong Kong? And actually, there's a layer of uh, code that can drive where this token can or cannot trade. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that people have to understand about tokens, right? Is that it's really just programmable software. Yeah. And sure, there are VPNs and all this other stuff, but there are ways that you can determine where somebody is at, from where somebody is accessing that token based on IP addresses. And you can use GPS information if you really want to, right? But there are plenty of ways to do this with technology. And through what's in the programmable token, you can then control from a regulatory standpoint who can and who cannot invest in that thing. And to be fair, it's trackable and it's immutable, right? If it sits on a blockchain, so it's easy to understand where that's going on. And you've got gigantic companies and growing companies like Merkle Science doing tracking of all this stuff as well to try to figure out how all those things fit together. Like to me, I see all these little bits and pieces coming together and I actually think it's kind of cool. Sumit, did you want to say something? Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm aligned with you. I'm perfectly aligned with you, right? But the, 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 the big question is, you know, how are, which regulators are going to allow and which regulators are not going to allow? Yeah. Who is going to let go and who is not going to let go, right? Because what's quite interesting is, you know, we, we talk a lot of to exchanges as well, right? Like, go ahead. you know, on Hong Kong exchange or, or, or an Indian exchange or a UK exchange, right? And the first question we ask to a bunch of these exchanges is, right? Like, you are in the best position, right? To actually tokenize everything out there, right? And really make it, right? But the question yeah. is, there is so much of money involved in these exchanges in the process that they run today, the whole settlement process and the way they manage their thing. By doing all this, you're taking away all that money from them, right? right. It's completely decentralizing something which is being run in a centralized way. And, and, and by the way, all of these exchanges are somehow very close to the regulators, right? Regulators have a feeling of it helps me regulate, but it's also money source. So really, like it, it's a big change that the regulators have to do, right? So technology can enable everything, right? But the Unless only the human beings are open to it and willing to do it, it's not going to be easy. It will happen one day, right? It will happen one day. The question is, is it three years, five years or 10 years? The technology will ensure we reach there, right? But this is the human element of this, the money involved, the, the feeling of security because I can regulate it and I have control. Those things will come in way. If I, if I can just add to that, right? It's it's very funny when you have these conversations and we all take it for granted. I mean, I come from financial services, I think, Michael, you as well. And when I say things like T plus two is not acceptable in 2022. <laughs> it makes me laugh. Plus two it's not acceptable. But, you know, we, we talk about this float and we talk about this, and, you know, and the settlement and all that. In reality, it's an artificial construct because... Yeah not build computers fast enough to solve yeah. instantaneous settlement, right? Right. But we think that multi plus two is okay and banks have obviously benefited from sure. you know floats and, and all of that. My question back actually is how much does it cost you to manage that float? And actually is that productive capital? So I think 
when the central banks and regulators think about it, there's actually that T plus two or T plus five or even T plus one is unproductive capital. Unproductive, because it sits somewhere. So is the, does the velocity of money help and enhance the economy in, in, in many ways? But these are very higher level questions that I think regulators should eventually push the intermediaries uh, to solve. Because today the banking system should focus on what they're good at, for example, advice, financing. Loans. You know, not, yeah, loans. Yeah. Not worry about the float or, or, you know, fret about the float, right? Asset managers the same way. I mean, haven't we already proven that T plus like microseconds is already possible? People Venmo money to each other. I could send you money right now and it would, before this podcast was over, before I even finished saying it, it would already be in your wallet, right? So we know that's possible. You know, I come out of a Japanese market, which was T plus three. When I went to T plus two, even T plus one, I was like, why? It's just an electronic thing. And this is from 20 years ago. This stuff should be way faster. Can I also say this? You know, we talk about asset tokenization, but asset securitization has been going on for decades. And, and at some level, the tokenization provides much more functionality to the securitization of the asset in the sense that it allows you to fractionalize it. And there are other benefits too, but it allows you to fractionalize it in a way that couldn't have been done before. So, I mean, you're smiling at me. Is 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 that fair? But you understand what I mean? Like, because some of your clients you say are asking, is the tokenization of assets going to happen and is it going to be big? I mean, it's already, securitization is already a massive business and tokenization just allows us to take it to the next level, right? So everything can be tokenized. And in that sense, that means that every everything can now be invested. Is that fair? Yes, it's actually very fair. And you know, Michael, you raise a very good point, right? So I was talking to a large bank. When I talk to my clients, right? I think, I think that's the first question they ask, right? When we start to talk about tokenization, they say, how is it any different then, you know, securitization, right? You know, mortgage-based securities have always existed in life. Yep. You know, we have REITs, which exist today, right? Like, yep. like we have REITs, we have mortgage-based securities, and, and then there are many other tools like that which exist, right? Some people even say, oh, we have mutual funds. Isn't mutual fund actually a tokenization, right? Because an asset manager takes huge amount of investments and then breaks into small, small pieces and then gives it to individual investors. Well, all of them, I would say, are some form of tokenization because right. you are actually making an investment size from bigger to smaller. Right. And they are also actually making it slightly more liquid. The big, the big difference, right? And at least um, that's, that's how I feel about it is first of all, the size at which you can go down to, if you're using blockchain as a, as a way to tokenize is much, much smaller. Right. The kind of liquidity you can create is, much higher than you know what you can create in a traditional technology and third and the most important thing the cost if you actually have to tokenize right if you take a let's say you take a pre-ipo block of a stock right let's say a pre-ipo block of a grab stock right and you know at that point of time you know people are getting blocks at two hundred fifty thousand dollars, right i want to break it up i want to break it up and give it right if you are using ledger normal ledger to record that right and then use that to transfer first of all transferring is going to be very very difficult right but even if you're able to transfer before the IPO and record it, the cost is among us. I think we have done some internal research and, you know, based on our estimates, it's, it could be like, it could be close to 30% of a typical cost of doing something on, you know, something like this on a blockchain versus traditional ledger and trying to do it. Right. So it brings down the cost, makes the token much more smaller, increases liquidity and really puts a process, which is very, very scalable. Right. 
you can go and you know ipo a small size private company right you yeah. can go and ipo small land you can go and i mean there are players in argentina who are literally tokenizing corn and soy and future agriculture produce you can literally tokenize any kind of real asset in the world which i think securitization as a technology and a concept uh, cannot do right they can do something but not everything i well i as i say you can fractionalize on a spreadsheet right you don't you don't right, right. do that but fractionalization at scale and liquidity cannot you can't do that on a spreadsheet no and you know when you fractionalize and and you create liquidity what you also mean is you're taking on credit risk right so to get rid of that credit risk you have to create a settlement structure that makes sense right it's sort of a trustless settlement system that allows uh, something to be what i call fractionalized liquidized and tradable now if you take that concept and you just apply it okay so reits right what's a smaller version of reit let's say a residential apartment could that be fractionalized absolutely could yep. that create liquidity and a different asset class it actually could well let's take it one step further uh, as sumit was saying you know crops or soy or whatever how about a bottle of wine right we all know burgundy wines are hugely potentially expensive and the top wines go for 20000 which there is already an investment market for right? these products yeah and it's just that if you're you know sort of a general joshmo you're not going to buy be able to find or invest in a $20,000 bottle of wine right could you take that and that again that's already invested there are wine exchanges it's probably very inefficient it costs you a lot of money but it exists right but to take that and then say okay 100 people can invest in this $20,000 wine and it trades and there's a price then it becomes a more investable asset uh, asset class and accessible to uh, you know a different tier of net worth right it could be retail it could be mass affluent so to me this all sounds a little bit like what i used to call the berkshire hathaway problem right if your stock is trading at 400 something thousand dollars a share everybody wants to invest in it but since it's never split not everybody can actually afford to invest in it. so what happened was a whole bunch of fund managers grew up around Berkshire Hathaway and said, I'm going to do that thing exactly. Just whatever they own, we're going to own it too at some level, right? And you could do tilted as well to make it a little bit more efficient and maybe a little bit better returns. You could do whatever kind of alpha thing you wanted to. But still, that grew up. And that was really just the fractionalization or in a way the tokenization of Berkshire Hathaway because they could then drop the price on whatever that investment was possible. Yeah. So this has been going on forever. more sophisticated technology you then can actually that change that that shifts the boundaries of what you can do with it yeah exactly It's a fascinating point so can we talk a little bit about github again or at least the concept of software are there enough people cuz i want to talk about the the sort of roadblocks to growth right we i think all three of us agree this is going to be big it's just like what does it need to get there what do we need to get there to get it to be big Are there enough people out there actually that can make submits to GitHub, right? And I think maybe we should just have a GitHub index that focuses only on like distributed ledger technologies just to see if it's going up, down or flat. We could probably tokenize that as well. But are there enough people out there that actually understand how this technology works to be able to sustain the growth that we need to see to be able to build the tech stack to do this? Look, I mean I can give you a quick reaction that I think 
I think I think six months back I was doing some numbers and at least those ladies on the reports, right? Yep. At least my personal understanding is the number of JavaScript and Web two developers, and if you compare that to the Web three developers, it's a fraction. It's literally a fraction, right? The numbers, it is the numbers I had and would love to get corrected, but was more like fifteen to twenty thousand developers are actually in this space committed to actually spend at least 25 hours a week. That was the number I had, right? And this was six months back, right? Compared to millions and millions, more than 10 million of JavaScript developers and Web2 developers, right? So the extent of people who are actually engaged in the space is much more smaller, right? It, it, it tells me two things, right? One is there is really a big market out there for developers to learn this because the right. demand is going to grow. Right. Second is it's a great market for people to train developers to learn this. If anyone is thinking of starting a business to start training some of those people, I mean, it's a great opportunity to train people, right? But it also tells one thing, right? If you don't invest in that talent, then you may not be able to fully realize the power of this technology, right? Because if you want to replace a lot of applications and a lot of things on from web two to web three, you need the developer capacity. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of bullish on developers being able to understand how technology works and being able to switch between languages and frameworks because we've just seen it, you know, at my age, you've just seen this happen so many times, right? Um, so I'm pretty bullish on that. It will take time, but I think the opportunity there is so large. And to the extent that there's a large financial opportunity there, there's, there is a, um, there's an incentive for people to learn this kind of on their own. But you're right. There's also a massive business in being able to go out and train people how to do this. Are there, besides the tech and the regulatory issues, are there other roadblocks to growth that we should consider? I mean, I talked about financial institutions and, and, and how they're sort of approaching it. Yeah. My view is it will take some time for the incumbent system to shift. Yeah. It will take some time. It's not all there. Different parts of financial services move at different paces. Right. So I think... Uh, scale adoption um, again I think there's enough uh, momentum but one of the things is just going to be the continual need to educate demystify and I think this uh, project that we've done with BCG is fantastic right because it helped to demystify what actually tokenization is and it's the responsibility of all of within a bank, whether it's the CEO, the chief of strategy, but also the head of risk, also the head of ops and the head of tech to understand and um, apply or partner or think about building their own sort of tokenization approaches. And many of them are taking different strategies, but I think the more that a bank understands or a financial institution or an asset manager understands what what truly this can drive and deliver, but then of course manage what are the risks. I think those are probably some of the bigger hurdles. Yeah, I think Michael, I'll add one more thing, right? It's the whole consumer education, right? I think it's a big thing, right? And I'll tell you, if I think of two, two and a half years back, right? Mm -hmm. In this part of the world, and maybe Singapore is a bit of an exception, right? Uh, maybe in Singapore, people are people understand things more, right? Go to Malaysia, go to Indonesia, go to Philippines, go to Vietnam, right? And tell them alternate investment assets. Yeah, people will say, "Huh? What are you telling?" The only thing they will understand is fixed deposit, right. bond, and equity. Right. Have you even heard of arbitrage funds? Have you even heard of there are funds 
where which do you know take money from you and put in P2P lending company. Have you heard of funds which actually do life settlement funds? Right, there's so many alternate investment. Nobody even knew that. Even now, people are slowly learning it. Right, people are yeah. slowly learning it. Now they are teaching a completely new concept to them. You know, this is the concept of tokenizing. You know, tokenize investments. You can tokenize wine. You can tokenize car. You can tokenize agriculture. You can tokenize private equity funds. You can tokenize pre-IPO. In a market which has seen a crash, not just in crypto but also in the global equity markets, right? So first of all, a lot of people will say, "Oh, is this another crypto? Is this another of those speculative squid coin which will go missing tomorrow? What are you talking here, right?" Yeah. So you're actually struggling with that problem. And the second problem you're struggling with is, you know, a lot of the assets which are tokenized by uh, through this technology is completely. Unheard of from an investment perspective to the masses, right? Maybe the the top category of people that are really high net worth know it, right. but they actually don't even need tokenization, right? For them, they can actually spend fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, and you know, if I have to split a two fifty thousand dollars into five blocks on an Excel sheet, easy. So I can do that for them, right? There are players who are doing it already today, right? Uh, right. You know, there are competitors of ADX who are doing this on Excel sheets, right, and doing at fifty thousand dollars. So the question is. If I have to serve that segment, I can do it on Excel sheet, right? But the segment which I have to go after is very scared of crypto, is very scared of some of these assets. They don't know it, right? So investor education and getting them comfortable will also be a very important thing in this sector. Yeah. So financial literacy to me is something obviously really important, not just in this region but in the whole world. And I want to make an equivalency and see what you think, and then I'll let both of you go. You know, in the '70s and '80s, if I had told you, if I'd sat down with you and I said, "Sure, IBM." It's going to go away. They're not going to make computers anymore. No one's going to care about their mainframes. And at some point, they're not going to be this hegemonistic company that everybody cares about or that compact computer is going to go away and it's going to be replaced by a phone in somebody's pocket. You would have told me that I was crazy. And you may have been right at the time. But I think some of the existing financial institutions that are there today are going to be the IBMs of the financial services industry and will look back on and think, I never actually thought that that could happen. And I think we're at, I don't know if we're at the inflection point yet, but I feel like we're really close to it. And I'll tell you why, because I think the education part of it and also the ease of use was the same. It's the same construct, right? As computers became more useful, the growth didn't just go like this, nice and easy. It kind of went like this. It's like, what's that old saying on bankruptcy? It happens really slowly and then it happens immediately or it happens really fast, right? It's the same thing. Nobody knows how to use computers and then everybody wants one right? And I think it's the same thing is going to happen in the asset tokenization space. And frankly, in the tokenization of the financial services industry at scale is no one's going to care. No one's going to be bothered by it. We can't even short things. I understand the derivative side of the market, but you and I have already been through this as well. Like, If you really want to have liquidity, you have to have multiple sides of the market. And tokenization allows you to do this at scale in a way that was never going to be possible before. But do you think that we're going to get to sort of the IBMization, if I can make up that word, of some of these financial institutions and that in five to 10 years, some of them are just going to be gone or just shells. Yeah. I think financial services companies who see it, anticipate it and pivot. It's not something that would completely disrupt them or get rid of them if they understand the adoption and where, if, yeah. how it impacts, how it yep. impacts. Agreed. Oh, mortgage financing. How does it impact securities market? How does it impact wealth management? The earlier the CBDC, stable coins, the faster they understand it and build positions around it, they won't be, I suspect they would still really be, I think governments still need traditional financial services firm to, uh, you know, to be, be around. Yeah. 
be around. Yes. Simi? No, I'm, I'm actually aligned with that. And I actually feel that there will be three types of players in the future. Yeah. So there are there are these large financial institutions, right? And I, I mean, in this topic, when I talk to some of the large, the real large guys, right, from North America, right? They actually get it, by the way. They are actually they do now, yeah. yeah, they get it. And they are actually putting a lot of firepower behind it, be it money, be it technology, be it people, right? Even if you take the topic of asset tokenization and go to papers and, you know, Google search on the names on North America, right? The big banks are taking it seriously and making a statement, right? So I feel the big boys, the global big boys will get it, right? And and I would say not all of them will be able to execute because it's not easy, right? Because some of them are too difficult to move. But, but some of the big boys will do it, right? For me, the interesting thing is some of the local or regional champions at least in this part of the world, still don't understand it, right? So they are behind. Now, the question is, the reason they are behind is they are basically saying, let me wait for someone else to succeed, right? right? I want to be a fast follower. And the question is, look, you can be a fast follower. I'm not saying you can't be a fast follower, right? But not everybody can be a fast follower. And that is where the problem comes, right? And I actually feel there are some smaller institutions which actually realize the advantage and they can become regional champions of tomorrow, right? So you'll see birth of new regional champions of tomorrow. You will see a bunch of regional champions get lost behind because they wanted to be a fast follower, but there are too many people going to follow. But some of the big boys, the large big boys, they would figure it out, right? Because they would figure it out. And the regulators overall will ensure that, you know, as um, you know, as my colleague talked about, right? It's, it, they will ensure that the system is kept sane and the, you know, the financial systems exist, right? That cannot get disrupted because that is, that money is, in the end, money is something which runs the whole world, right? If, if money can be disrupted, then the whole world will go zombie. <laughs> but Sumit, you know, actually, even if you wanted to be a fast follower, you have to be prepared to follow quickly. Correct. Yeah. So that, isn't, that, that, that doesn't mean that you can just dig a hole in the sand, stick your head in like an ostrich yes. and say, yeah. When I come out and things are ready, I will jump into it, right? Because yeah. you need to stay very much current. What is the thinking yeah. of regulators? What's the thinking of, you know, where's Basel going to be with digitized securities yeah. and, and cryptocurrencies? Where is uh, Where are my own regulators going to be? Right. And then what are the technologies? Am I going to be backing someone now, partnering someone now, or thinking about building someone, building a, a platform, right? So uh, even being a fast follower needs yeah. a lot of work today yeah yeah okay look let's end on that there's a ton more stuff to talk about i really appreciate you know you, you know how much i love these conversations i really appreciate both of you doing this simi kumar managing director and partner at bcg and oyichu the ceo at addicts this was awesome really awesome please come back and do this again thanks michael thank you michael